Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Well, I kind of want to finish up what I went after last time, which you probably don't remember because there's been a lot of water under the bridge, but I'm talking about living ready, being the people of God that are ready. Um, I like something that Smith Wigglesworth, if you know who he was, man with a great, powerful healing ministry in the early 1900s in England, um, he had little pithy sayings that he would say, and one of them that he said is, living ready is better than getting ready. And so, as believers, we're called to be ready and to live in the moment ready at any moment for the Holy Spirit to use us, to speak through us, to reach out through us. And the reality is, that's not always easy to do, right? I, um, I love words. I love language. I love to watch my kids learn language. I love to watch other people's kids. My grandkids learn and learn from their siblings. And, and words and language are fascinating to me. But they, you know what they also do? Words in a culture define where that culture is going. There's new words that are happening all the time, you know, right? New English words are happening, and there's new ones. A couple of the newest ones that have come on the grid, I think, are really revealing for the times in which we live, and that's one reason why I want to preach this message, because we're in the end times, right? When did the end times start? When did the end time start? When Jesus rose from the dead. We're in the last days. Amen. So we're in the last days. But in our culture, we seem to be careening towards massive deception. I think that is true. Um, There's a couple of words that have intrigued me recently that have just come out. So after much discussion, debate, and research, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year, drum roll, for 2016 is the word post-truth. Here's the definition of the word post-truth. Post-truth is an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Post-truth is an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Hello, gender confusion. I, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone sometimes. It's just, it's so, so bizarre. Let let me give you another word that has come out in the last few years. It is the word gaslight. Who's heard of that word? Gaslighting, you're gaslighting. So here's what gaslighting means. It was selected by the American Dialect Society. I didn't even know there was such a thing. In 2016, again, as the most useful new word of the year. 
The term is now defined in Merriam-Webster as psychological manipulation to make someone question their perception of reality. Hello, society. Things that are so obvious and have been obvious for my whole life, now I'm getting told every single day that none of that's true, that I'm the one who's deranged and have lost my mind. Any, anybody feel that way? What does that speak of? The deceiver is running rampant with his message everywhere, trying to distort truth. And for us, the church of Jesus Christ is the foundation and the buttress and the guardian of truth. And we cannot and will not surrender the truth. This is truth. We're going to hold to the truth. And we need to be those who are ready to speak the truth and not to bow to the insanity of the philosophy that there is no truth. Folks, it doesn't take long. Listen to one newscast and you see this is happening. There's great deception in our society. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is my main text. Y'all listen, I'm going to do my best to try to abbreviate this. Okay, it's 10 till 12, so I didn't get a good start. But, but y'all, go with me. I feel like I do have a word from the Lord this morning. So I'm asking you to, to tune in and tie in and not just look at the clock and go, when's this guy going to be done flapping his gums? Okay, um, let, let, let's, let's tune. I'm just asking you as my brothers and sisters to, to draw in and, and hear what the word of the Lord is for us this morning. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and this is talking about the end times which we are in. Let's read verses 1 through 8, and I want to concentrate on verses 6 through 8 especially, but let's take the whole context. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So when Jesus returns for the second time, it's going to be a surprise to most people. Agreed? Like a thief in the night. You don't expect that. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Okay, that's a little bit um, dark. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. Say, I'm not in darkness that that day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Since we are of the day, let us be sober. It's the second time he uses that word. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. What do you do with a breastplate and a helmet? You fight. We're in a war. If you've ever seen a war, you, you would know that drunks make very lousy soldiers. Very lousy. Their reflexes are terrible. They can't think clearly. They don't even know what's going on. They're, 
they're going to be dead right away. So he's telling us we're in a battle. We know this, right? These same two words are used over 30 times in the New Testament to warn believers, be alert, be on the watch, be sober, be awake. That's the same two words that are used in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be awake, be vigilant, be on the alert for your adversary. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we need to be alert and awake. We need to be at the top of our game. We need to be spiritually sharp. This message is to encourage us as believers not to get spiritually sharp when we're going on a missions trip or when we're preaching, but to live ready and spiritually sharp because the Lord has assignments for us. I'm convinced that we miss all the time or we just put our head down and go past, but he's got assignments for us that he wants us to be ready now. So we want to be ready. I want to look at these two words just briefly here. The word alert, the word sober, they basically have the same meaning. Spiritual alertness in the face of potential danger is the way that these words are used all of the time. Spiritually alert in the face of potential danger. And sober, obviously, you know, is the opposite of drunkenness. When I was thinking about and pondering this message, I thought back to my days before Jesus had apprehended me and all the times I was drunk. I couldn't count them all, but I remember and I cringe and I bow my head and I say, oh, thank God for your blood. I was such a fool, said the stupidest, did the dumbest, most idiotic, hurtful things when I was drunk, but I thought it was cool because I was drunk. I wasn't alert and sharp and awake Spiritually, there's things that make us drunk, inebriated to where we're insensitive, we're sluggish, we're not sharp. And I want to talk about what some of those things are. Just to point them out, I I feel like this is a checkup. Kind of like you take your car in and get the checkup, right, Ray? You go down the list and you check these things off. This is a checkup for us to see if there's areas in our life that we have allowed that make us sluggish or drunk. I want to read a quote to you by uh, John Piper, whom I love very much. It's got a little bit of an edge on it. Are you okay with an edge? You probably are. If I'm up here, you're probably okay with a little bit of an edge. But listen, this helps me because it brings to the reality of, listen, we have all experiences. Listen, there's nobody in this room that wouldn't say, there's so many times in my life where I've been been spiritually dull and sluggish. And what we do wrong is that we wait until we are going to just come out of that like naturally instead of going after it and making sure that we're living ready and sharp spiritually. Quote by Piper, for many of us, the hardest part of the day is staying sober. He's not talking about drinking with alcohol. We go into work as sharp-dressed, productive drunks. Or we crash on the couch after work, turn on Netflix, and get hammered until bed. Even Christian pastors find it hard not to get intoxicated, even while preparing a sermon or writing a study curriculum. The end of all things is at hand, and we are not paying attention. We work and play, eat and drink, go to church and school, while stumbling inebriated through it all. 
Stay sober. This is the most important part of your day. Spiritually alert. Not dull, senseless, foolish. What things make us drunk from a spiritual standpoint? I've got... Always when I preach, I'm processing all these things beforehand because my, my prayer is, Lord, I don't want to be a hypocrite when I get up there and pretend like I've got it all together. I don't. But these are things that creep in and we're not aware, and so we need to address them. How many are okay with a little bit of awkward this morning? Okay, come on. All right, here's, here's the six things I'm going to go through. These things make us dull and stupid spiritually if we're not careful. Number one. Luke 8, 14 is my text for this. There's many that I could bring out. Luke 8, 14 says this. This is the parable of the soils or the sower. As you know, Jesus explaining it, it says, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they're choked with the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So they're distracted And the word pleasures is what I want to focus on with point number one. So I'm going to say the first thing that makes us spiritually dull and not ready, spiritually sharp, is pleasures and entertainment. Do you know one of the most cutting verses in all the Bible, I think, is when Paul's talking about widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 6. And he says, there's widows who are widows indeed where they really don't have any resource, but they should be women of God who are praying and yes, definitely support them. But then there's widows who actually had a pretty good little bit set aside for them by their husband when he died and they've got money. And and he says this, those who live for pleasure are dead while they live. Hello, America. Hello, Amazon. Hello, Netflix. Hello. This, is a, this morning is going to be just a call to honesty with our own heart. Are, are there times when we are that person who flops down on the couch and just veges? I've had a hard day. How, how, many, how many have said this? I've just had a hard day. I just want to sit down here and chill and watch. Just want to watch. Just want to watch and feed into my brain, feed into my soul. So here's the thing. Am I saying I never watch anything? No, no. Here's the thing. Let's be honest enough with our own heart to analyze what the effect of what we're doing is, right? That would make sense. If doctor's giving you medicine and you're taking it and you're becoming violently ill, would you just keep on taking it or would you call and say, hey, this is making me sick, I don't want to, this is not making me better. Wouldn't you analyze what the effect of what we're doing is? So let me, look, I know we all take this for granted and we've all got way too much of this stuff in our house and in our life. It's because we're Americans and we can afford it. It's because we're Americans and it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. So but here's the question. If we're living in the end times as end time soldiers, are we going to make sure that we live ready and safe or are we going to pay somebody else to do that for us? 
Oh, you fast and pray for me. Or are we going to go to a conference and get all excited about fasting and praying and seeking God, but then go back into the old pattern that makes us dull and insensitive? I told you it was going to be awkward. But this is for our good. This is for the Lord's purposes and what he wants. Listen, this is not a beat down. This is asking ourselves the honest questions. Are we spiritually sharp? Do we live that way most of the time? Or are we mostly spiritually dull? Except for when we get into a really hard place or we're supposed to be called upon to do some kind of ministry. That's the question. And the second answer is the most common in the church of Jesus Christ, in the Pentecostal church, in the charismatic church. We get ready when we need to, but we don't live ready. And that's a shame because how many thousands of opportunities that the Lord has for us do we squander when we do that? Just asking, so would you, I'm asking for honesty this morning. If you'll be honest with your own heart, like I'm trying to be honest with my own heart. Like, are you willing to put everything down? Like we, we talk about this language, Jesus is Lord. That means we do what he says. We do what he wants, right? We give him what he wants. Well, what if he wants a people that are spiritually sharp, that are ready, that are filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, the Bible teaches in Ephesians 5.18, right? Two believers, don't be drunk with wine. That's acting like a fool. That's my paraphrase but be filled continuously with the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. Be continuously being filled, like that is your pattern. You're continuously being filled with the Holy Spirit. That don't happen by accident. We have to be intentional about it. So pleasures and entertainment. So here's my question. What do we delight in most? What do we think about most when we have free time? What do we default to, and what is the effect of it? Another one of my heroes of the faith, Susanna Wesley, John and Charles Wesley's mama. She lived in this house. Her husband was not a great guy. He was in jail a few different times. He was pretty lazy, but she mostly raised the kids by herself, and their godly upbringing was mostly to her credit, John and Charles Wesley. She had nine or 10 children in her house and she had one room and when she went to get in her prayer closet, she literally pulled her apron up over her head and said, don't bother me when this apron's over my head, I'm praying and talking to Jesus. And so the kids learned, you leave mama alone, she's in the sanctuary with the Lord. She had her apron over her head. That's pretty cool. When John goes to college at 13 years old, he already knew Greek and Latin then because he was homeschooled. He was brilliant. That's, that's a true thing. Like he, They taught them Greek and Latin by the time they were adolescents and teenagers, and he went to college in Oxford. And he asked his mama in a letter, Mom, what are acceptable pastimes? Because here I'm in this whole new big world of all of these things that are happening with college students that are away from home. What are acceptable pastimes and what are temptations to be resisted? This has helped me over the years and I've brought it out and read it myself many times. So good. Let's use this as a standard just to measure our own life, okay? Here's what she said to him. Would you judge the lawfulness of pleasure? Then take this rule. 
This is how you measure, in other words. Whatever weakens your reason, whatever increases the authority of your body over your mind, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, whatever takes away your desire for spiritual things, whatever obscures your sense of God, that is sin to you no matter how innocent it may seem in itself. How many like that want to shout amen right now? Oh! This is wisdom though. If we want to live ready, we have to be honest and take ownership of what we feed into our life that makes us dull. We really do. I know this is hard. This is laying something on the altar, but that's, if I could suggest to you, that's when the fire burns hot. Whatever weakens your reason, increases the authority of your body over your mind, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, whatever takes away your desire for spiritual things, so huge. What is the net effect of this? Is this making me want God more or I don't even think about it? I want him less. I've just become spiritually dull. Like, let's be honest and say, okay, let's measure things by the effect that they're going to have on eternity, right? That's what wise would do. Agree? Okay. I know y'all don't like this. I don't care. Another Wigglesworth, to hunger and thirst after righteousness is when nothing in the world can fascinate us so much as being near to God. So what pleasures and entertainment do we need to cut out? Or what, what pattern of our life do we need to re-examine? That's what I'm asking here. Because the Lord is doing something in this body and he wants to do us something in us individually as well. He's got a purpose and a plan and we think, oh God, just send revival. Oh, you don't know the history of revival. You don't know how that works. When God comes in the midst, everybody goes low and everything gets dug out and everything gets exposed and put on the table and everything goes on the chopping block. That's what happens in revival. Because when perfect light comes into the room, there's nowhere to hide. And so this is merciful for us to examine these things now and not before the judgment seat of Christ, right? I don't want to get before the Lord and him going, you know, you actually... There could have been so much more, but you wasted 60% of your life because you were addicted to watching movies and sports and all the stuff. I, I don't want to hear that. Like, I know the Lord's for me and that he loves me, but I also know I can screw it up. And in, in our society, the things that I'm calling out are things that we all take for granted and that we all do and that we've all experienced, so it seems really comfortable, Right? We all do this. It's really okay. Everybody does it. And I'm not abdicating that you burn your TV or break it. or I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying let's take an honest view of how things are actually affecting our spiritual life. And be honest before the Lord and go, Lord, what do you want to prune, right? Are we all about Jesus having what he wants in our life? Are we? Right? This is going to tell. This is going to be the real test are we willing to take that and go, Lord, do you want me to fast watching sports for a while? 
or listening to politics or watching movies? What if he says yes? Is that okay? Is that, I'm serious. Is that okay? So here's the thing. He commands us to be sober, to be alert, to be watchful, to be sharp spiritually, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So then we should say, since that's what you commanded and that's what you want, then anything that gets in the way of that is on the chopping block. We have to reorient our priorities. I'm convinced in this age. We're living in an age in the world and especially in our culture, where deception is running rampant. And we'll be swept into it if we're asleep, guaranteed. That was pretty good preaching, actually. But. Um, number two. I read this out of Mark 4, uh, out of Luke 8. I'm going to read this out of Mark chapter 4, verse 19. And this will... This will be my verse for the next two points. Mark 4, verse 19. I know we don't like to talk about this stuff because, listen, the truth is, the things that I'm talking about this morning are idols in our culture. And we have to actually examine ourselves and see whether or not we're holding on to idols or not. I know that sounds edgy. I don't feel edgy saying that. I, I know it's real. 419 of Mark says, but the worries of the world, again, this is the parable of the sower, and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The, the Greek word there is really instructive where it says they enter in. The Greek word says they creep in. It's really slow and subtle. They just creep. They creep in. These desires creep in little cracks in our heart and soul. So the second one is that we have to, is how we relate to our money and possessions. I, I've touched on it last time we talked. I know, I get that. I see the look when I, I try not to look at y'all when I say things. So. We don't like to talk about this. We're the richest country that's ever existed in the history of the world, which is all right. The Lord's not against riches. How many know that's true? He's against covetousness because he calls it idolatry. And if we're always having to have more and our identity is based on what we have materially and if that's the thing that we delight in more than anything else, he's not okay with that. He's not okay with that. Money and possessions. The deceitfulness of riches. It's deceitful. There's whole theologies that promote that God wants us to be rich. And I would say that God wants some people to be rich, but only the people who won't be covetous and only the people that will be extravagantly generous. So then you say, well, brother, what do we do with 1 Timothy 6, 17, which says that God gives us all things richly to enjoy? Amen, he does say that. But let me just read that verse for you, and then you'll get the antidote to that in the same verse, okay? 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, he's talking... To Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world, which is most of us in this room. I know you guys don't like that and you don't think that because you compare yourself with Donald Trump. But you have to compare yourself with every other person living on the face of the earth and you're richer than 98 or more percent of those people. The resource that we have is phenomenal. So look, we have to guard our heart and make sure that we're going to live sharp 
before the Lord. So what's the remedy? Verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Hello, social media. Hello, Kanye West. Just saying. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Look, here's the reality. The Lord can take our riches and go, boom, gone. And they can disappear like nothing. Solomon said that. Don't set your heart on riches because they'll take wings and fly away. Like I had the sense the whole time that I was in business, like if the Lord took his hand off of me for one second, I would lose everything that I had. We should have that sense. That's real. All right, where's the antidote to this thing? How do we get the balance here? We're getting to it. Don't Tell them don't fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Verse 18 is the remedy. Instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So what is the purpose of God blessing us with material things? It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 where he says that he gives seed to the, not to the hoarder, He gives seed to the sower. So if you want God to bless you and use you as a conduit for blessing, then start giving and start being generous extravagantly. I tell people, if you want to operate in the spiritual gift of the word of knowledge, the best way to start is to pray and ask the Lord who you should give money to. He'll flat do it. I've had a few occasions in my life where he gave my wife and I a certain figure and we gave that to a person and they just started to bawl and go, that's exactly, I mean exactly the amount that the Lord, that we prayed and asked the Lord for. And it makes people know God sees them and it's powerful. It's marking. But there's a reason for our stuff and it's not so that we can amass more and have all of this comfort and extravagance and live luxuriously. That's what the rich man did in Luke chapter 16. And the Lord said, you fool. You fool. Who are you hoarding all this up for? Now you not only lost that, you lost your soul. What are you going to do? There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You're going to leave everything. When you die, everything. They're going to go through your closet and take your clothes and give them away to relatives. They're going to take all your trinkets. They're going to take all your jewels. You're not going to have anything that you're going to take except for your soul. But you can be rich toward God. How are we rich toward God? By being extravagantly generous people. Come on. This is the teaching of the New Testament. And we have to embrace this if we're going to be free from the idolatry of putting our security and our identity in our stuff. I get it. I ran a business for a long time. I was terrible at it at the beginning. The Lord finally got me in the right alignment and began to bless it. And we had a lot of money for a while. And I can tell you 100% the greatest joy is to target people with the Lord that you can bless. It's magnificent. It's magnificent. He wants to have a people where our heart is not connected or attached to our stuff. Where we don't need a shiny car, shiny rings, and shiny whatever. We just want God. And we want him to have his way. And whatever he gives us, we want to use it for what he wants. Come on, are you all in agreement with this? Okay, 
I know, I know it doesn't preach good. C.S. Lewis, I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. Listen, listen carefully. This is about money. Then I'm going on to the third one. You'll probably be glad I'm out of this point. I do not believe that anyone can settle how much he ought to give. Here, here's what he's talking about. You've got to leave it all on the table. You can't go, okay, God, this is yours. This is mine. Can I ask you a question? The Pharisees were meticulous tithers, were they not? Meticulous, counting down seeds the size of pepper grains. Did that cure them of their covetousness? You know what does cure you of covetousness? Is when you go, it's all yours. Cap included. What, what, what do you want me to do with it? And you really do in your heart leave it out there like that. That's what cures you of covetousness. Because until we realize it ain't ours at all, we're still going to hold on to whatever percentage we want that we think is ours. The 90% ain't ours. That's delusional. Come on, y'all. It's awkward. Here's the essence. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule, listen, the only safe rule is to give more than we can afford. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, hello, luxuries, hello, amusements, hello, is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch us or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we would like to do and cannot do because our giving is so large. Come on. I'm trying. C.S. Lewis still preaching from the grave. Come on. So good. All right, number three, y'all. How, how are you hanging in there? Okay, we got six points, but we're going to get there. All right. Number three was in uh, Mark 4.19, and it is this, cares of life and the busyness of life. So, I used to work 60-hour weeks in my business, had seven children that we homeschooled, was also an elder at this church. That was hard. That wasn't as hard. It was ridiculous. I'm no hero. I'm no hero. But here's the thing. That's what the Lord put on my plate at that time. I had to take care of my babies because I got seven kids. All of them had braces. Two of them had them twice. I'm like, it's crazy. I'm like, Lord, how are you going to pay for these kids? He said, don't worry about it. You just have them. I'm going to pay for them. It's going to be all right. So... Um, There is inheritance. Praise God, I want, I want the inheritance he's got for me. That's hard. Here's what I learned in that season. I literally for years, I mean, I still mostly, if you all have ever seen me in a prayer meeting, I usually get up and pace and walk. Because for so many years, I had to walk or I would fall asleep when I prayed. It only took me 30 seconds and I'd be asleep because I was so stinking tired and exhausted. And again, I don't think I'm any kind of hero at all. This is, you do what you got to do. But look, I believe the Lord showed me this, the widow's might. When you're a mama with young children 
and, and you don't have time. And there's always somebody who's fighting, having a poopy diaper, is hungry, or there's some kind of problem. They got a toy in the head. And it's really hard. You're like, Lord, how am I going to have time to spend with you? And that's what I was saying to the Lord one day. I was actually up in the prayer tower at Carpenter's Home before they bulldozed that. And I was praying. I was just crying out to the Lord, like, Lord, well, I don't know how to do this. I'm so tired and my schedule's so busy and I'm, the train's going 90 miles an hour and I don't know how to get off without dying, but if I don't get off, I'll die. Like, what's going to happen? And I felt like he showed me, listen, I'm not asking you to do what you cannot do. All I'm asking is that you take what you have and give it to me. Just like the widow. Jesus sat there in front of the offering. You guys, he sat there in front of the offering bucket with his disciples watching people put money in. Jesus, that's personal. What are you doing? Yeah, he is doing it because he's looking at the heart. He goes, this woman who put in that penny, she gave more than all of these other people who made this big show and put the 10,000 in because it was all that she had. And I felt like the Lord told me that. Like with the busyness of life where it's stuff that you can't eliminate, it's just on your plate for this season, just take what you have. Give me that might. And that's worship to God. I believe this, that God knew that it would be a battle with our schedule. And he wanted for us to be able to sacrifice for him to prove our love to him. I'll have to get up earlier then. I'll lose sleep. Give to the Lord a sacrifice. We sing he's worthy. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Come on. What is it going to take in our life, in our season, for us to stay spiritually sharp is the question. To be awake. To be sober. And not to be drunk on the cares of life. Number four. Also in Mark chapter four, verse 19, the verse that I read. So I'm moving a little faster trying to. Thank you all for your patience. Number four, carnality and worldly pursuits. And I take that from that phrase in Mark 4, 19 that says desires for other things. We live in an age in the church, y'all, where, listen, this is reality. There's a lot of carelessness in the way that we live. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it generally and broadly. This is not a throwdown. This is not a, this is just real. I hear stories all the time of church staffs that go out and drink together. Alcohol. Yeah, but brother, you can't say that drinking alcohol is a sin. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it definitely can be careless. If you're drinking because you like to get a buzz, then you're already off base. If you're drinking because you can't relax without having that wine, then you're already off base. Can I just say that? Can I say that in this house? That, that's real. I know, because I was a stinking drunk. Why don't I drink? There's, there's two really good reasons why to be very careful in the way that we live. One is because the name of Jesus Christ is on us, and the unbelievers see it. 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12 
Abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. And make sure that your behavior before the unbelievers is excellent. So that in the day of the Lord's visitation to them, they will glorify God because of your good works and life. His name is on us. We do good worshiping and saying he's worthy, but then he's asking what does it look like in your life and in the marketplace. I hear stories a lot about church staffs and they think it's cool. It's just, it's come down from the culture the culture has pushed in. And again, I'm not saying this in any kind of self-righteous way, but it grieves me for the name of the Lord and his purposes. Swearing at each other, thinking that's cool, using, using swear words. I don't think it's cool. I think it's disobedient. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification that it might give grace to the hearer. Only that kind of word. So what's the other reason? The name of Jesus is upon me, but I'll tell you something. There's another reason to take our liberty. So in our, in our generation, liberty and freedom is like an idol in, in, in the Christian church because we've got our freedom now. We can do all of these things. But listen, there, there's good reason not to exercise all the liberty that you have. Yeah, you might have scriptural reason where you can drink and all that. And I'm not saying it's wrong if you do have wine with your spaghetti. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we need to be careful and live to where we are spiritually sharp because your brother might be seeing you and somebody who was an alcoholic in their life, this is a real thing. Somebody who was an alcoholic in their life and in bondage to alcohol and the Lord set them free, then they see me at a football game drinking a Bud Light and they go, oh, it must be okay. And they get back in to drinking again because it's okay because somebody I respect and the Lord, I'm seeing them do it. And then they go back to shipwreck on the alcohol that took them under in the first place. And Jesus said, no, it's not their, it's not their fault. I hear this all the time. Well, that's their problem. No, it's not their problem. The Bible says it's our problem. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, why would you destroy, ruin one for whom Christ died by your liberty? That's not loving. That's a really good reason if that alone, just as being a spiritual leader, like I will never drink because of that alone. Not because I think I'm going to get hooked on it again. But for the sake of the name of Jesus. And for the sake of my brother. Who I can take down because I embolden his conscience where his conscience is weak. Then Jesus said that I've sinned against him. It's not his problem. Come on, let's get that clear. It's our problem. And he's going to hold us accountable for that. And we need to be careful how we live. That come across too edgy, y'all. Carnality and worldly pursuits. Number five. Things that keep us dull. Spiritual laziness. Jesus said in the parable of Matthew 25 at the judgment, he gave each one of them 
a talent. Here's what I've given you to do what I want you to do. One he gave one, one he gave three, one he gave five. You know the story. At the end, the one who buried his talent in the ground, Jesus said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. Lazy. That had an edge to it. It takes spiritual discipline to be a godly person. Did you know the Bible says that? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 says that. It says discipline. And the word is the word that we get gymnasium from. It's talking about exertion. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. What that tells me is we're not going to be godly if we're not disciplined. We have to put forth the effort. Just like you're training for a sport or gymnastics, we have to put effort in that. We have to be diligent about it, right? Come on, godliness is worth it. He said bodily exercise, verse eight, profits little, but godliness is profitable for everything, not just for this age, but also for the age to come. That seems like that's worth being disciplined and diligent. Come on, y'all. We, we, let, let's just, I'm just asking us to take a, an inventory. I'm not saying that we're all spiritually lazy. But I'm saying, can we just take an honest look at these issues and go, am I really living as a spiritually sharp person that I'm ready? I'm living ready. I don't have to get ready. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't want to give us a message and we run with it and then we have a message. He wants to make us into the message. That way wherever we are, he has us. That's true. I figured this probably wouldn't preach really well, but um, I believe it's true. And I believe the Lord wants to raise us to a higher level where we are now. His heart is so great. So here's the thing, y'all. God's heart for us is so great, and his desires for us exceed what we have for our own selves. He just wants us to partner with him. Number six, prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, Be sober. There's that word. Therefore, for the purpose of prayer, for the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober for the purpose of prayer. The end of all things is at hand. All of the chips are in the middle of the table. Don't go drunk. We don't know what the stakes are that the Lord has for us in every single day. And I want to close out with Galatians 6. I'm going to read these three verses. And then we're going to pray. Galatians 6, verse 7. The book of Galatians, as you may know, is a book about grace and about how believers are no longer under the law as a means of righteousness. But it doesn't mean that we don't have a law. We have the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of love. We also have the Holy Spirit in us that we obey his leading. So we're not, we're not lawless. We just don't live under 
the law of Moses as, because he can't give power to do it, right? He can't give power to do the thing, but the Holy Spirit, when we yield to him, does. So here's the thing. At the end of the book of Galatians, Paul goes, look, don't misunderstand the things that I've been saying. Verse 7, do not be deceived. Why does he say do not be deceived? Because a lot of people are deceived in this area. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. This word has the idea of putting a finger on your nose to the Lord like that. Like, I, don't, I don't care what you say. I'm not going to reap the fruit of what I sow. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So he's, Paul's got the big picture in mind here. Like, here's two roads. One road is if you're sowing constantly into your flesh, you're going to end up in corruption. And, and the Greek word there has the idea of a rotting corpse. That's dead. It's a really ugly word. That's what you're going to reap. That's the harvest you're going to reap if you're sowing into your flesh. But if you're sowing into the Spirit, partnering with Him, sowing into the things that increase your connection with Him, that increase your sensitivity with Him, then you're going to reap eternal life. That's the end of those roads. But I want to submit to you that those roads have consequences even in this life. I've seen it over and over and over again in families. Sowing and reaping. I've seen parents, and I'm not, I'm not throwing down. I think you all know my heart for parents is big and for families. But here's what happens in their house and in their life. Sowing. Sowing to the flesh. Oh, they only watch TV for five hours a day. It's not bad. Well, I need to have a break for myself. Uh, yeah, we fight and drink and yell at each other and throw knives at each other in the house, but... And then when they get older, here's the question that's come to us. Why did my kids grow up that way? I'm like, what in the world? You sowed into that field. Don't be deceived. Those seeds will come up. They matter. Don't worry, I'm going to clean this up. Or we can sow into the field of the Spirit. We can say, no, I'm going to turn that off, Lord, because you're worthy of my time. Even if I just sit. So many times, y'all, this is my life, I'm telling you, my worship to God was that I would just sit on the floor. Sometimes I had things, I would write them out on note cards, and I would just sit on the floor and hold them up to God. I was so tired. I said, Lord, this is what I need you to do. And I'm helpless in myself. I'm powerless. And I'm asking you, read this card. <laughs> you know what I need. Whatever I can sacrifice to be with the Lord, to sow into the Spirit. Lord, I'm so tired, I can hardly stay awake. But I just want to walk. And say, I love you. A lot of times I just walk before the Lord and I just say, I lift up my soul to you. I lift up my soul to you because I want you and I need you and I love you. I don't know what to say. I don't have an eloquent prayer. I don't feel like I'm going to blast away in machine gun tongues right then. I just want to say I love you. I lift up my soul to you. 
You're sowing seeds every day with what you do. We're sowing seeds. And God said he's not mocked. They're going to come up and produce a crop. And so we have to decide where are we going to sow the seeds and where are we going to sow the most seeds? And what seeds are we sowing? God, I really wanted to buy a boat with that money, but I want to give that to Pastor John in Africa so he can buy sewing machines for those girls. Boom. You're going to see that money again. Jesus said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And when you get there, there's going to be true riches that will be entrusted to you. Like, this is real. This is not made up. This is real. We're sowing and reaping every day with what we do with our time. What are we doing with our seeds? That's the question. The Lord has something Amazing for you all, for this body, and for his purposes here. And what he's asking for is that we'll just get real enough to put everything on the table. So there's no heroes in this room. There's only one hero in every story. It's the Lord Jesus. He's the one who gave us the desire to do the thing that we do and the power to do it. He's the hero of every story. But can we spread things on the table and just say, Lord, here's all the pieces. I don't have any secret zipper pocket where I'm storing my little favorite marble. Everything on the table. Here's the policy that makes progress in God. Everything on the table. Leave it out there. Let the light shine on it. Let the Lord deal with it and do what he wants to do with it. He might not say give away your car. He might, but that's the excitement of it, right? What if he says, give away your car? Like, oh my gosh. This is the adventure of full-blooded discipleship. We deny ourselves that because we tame it down way too much. And he wants us to live in the full adventure of, I'm completely in your hands. You do whatever you want with whatever you want because I acknowledge, like we talked about last time, that I belong to you. I'm your slave and I'm glad for you to do whatever you want with what belongs to you. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.